0: Go across the sea for me to see to my love There she goes above the misty hills To the clouds that are above She rides high on disco lights But I fear that she smells my fear I once danced in a rainbow below the earth Only once but nothing was more clear that I must continue to fight for the divine right to die the tunnel it is far too bright man it seems out of sight
1: Hello, listeners. Hello. I'm Andrew.
2: I'm Rachel.
1: We're joined here by uh, with, by John Beecham.
3: Uh, welcome to my humble abode. <laughs> I've trapped them in my st- uh, basement studio. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and this is
3: Radiolab. No, it's not. What is it?
2: Armchair Apocrypha.
1: That's right. This is the uh, podcast where armchair experts tell possibly true
3: stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm an avid listener. I saw telling Andrew and Rachel. I haven't listened to every episode cause I have more podcasts I want to listen to than I have time to listen to them. But, um, I do really like them. They have good chemistry together. I think we appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: John just had us over to his, uh, basement studio to record an episode of hip squared. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
3: Yeah. So hip squared is a pop culture podcast. I record with my little brother, Troy Kramer. Um, Actually, Mayplex Monk records and produces the episodes, but it's uh, pop culture, and I say it's um, everything from the mainstream to the independent, weird, old, and local. So a lot of it is like, like for Halloween last year, I did um, Dracula 80 1972, which is a Hammer Horror film with Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Uh, Troy, last, uh, the finale for season three, talked about the Witcher book series, which most people know is a video game series, but everybody that reads any of the books says they're incredible, and... Coming out with a Netflix show, and I did um, The Angry Video Game Nerd for the finale, who's one of my digital heroes. He's one of the, like, well, if this asshole can do it, why can't I? Uh, He just does, like, video game reviews that are just extremely profane and funny, but he also pioneered the video game review genre because he would, like, have gameplay with commentary over top of that and then edits back to him. And so he's also, like, just... He developed and exploded with YouTube, so it's really cool. So that's the kind. That's what Hip Squared is. Uh, episodes try to be a half an hour long, but the crossover episode with um, Andrew and Rachel Armchair Apocrypha, we're calling Season Zero, Episode Zero Zero. It's kind of the bridge between Seasons uh, Two and Three. It will be about an hour, but most of them we try to keep it to like a thirty-five forty.
1: What did you uh, What did you do for Halloween?
3: Oh, uh, so this year for Halloween. So every halloween i have a few traditions um one i only i try to only uh, watch horror movies in october because i just feel like they're kind of a mindfuck and sometimes especially <laughs> if you if you watch the really hardcore ones they can get you down there's actually one called the green room that i really want to watch on netflix um there's this guy this podcast called stop podcasting yourself it's two canadian comedians that have a third guest that they talk to mm-hmm. apparently has um patrick stewart in it i think and it's yeah. about it's about a punk band that has a show canceled so they go into to like a white supremacist party and have a um like perform there and then shit happens do you know anything about that I it's
1: really good i've seen it a few times now okay. i recommend it highly
3: yeah i want to watch it but i've also heard like graham um graham is one of the hosts and he said uh yeah it was like he needed a palate cleanser after that graham clark and um can't believe i can't oh dave shumka hosts that they're both and um stop podcasting yourself is out of the maximum fun network you can download it anywhere if you want a really funny podcast to listen to but that's how my pop culture works too is like this one thing will get me into this other thing and Mm -hmm. then or um i also watched this really funny one called hobgoblins Uh, have you ever heard of that No. no it's like really funny low budget horror from the 80s and it's like it was ripping off gremlins basically. So it has the puppets, but it also has like this weird teenage sex comedy kind of thing. <laughs> um, it's hilarious. I watched uh, the beast with five fingers, which is a classic. Ho- I always dream at least one classic horror movie. It came out in 1946 with Peter Lorre, whom I love. Nice. He was uh who the guy that does uh ran was channeling. Yeah. Um, and he's in it. That's one is about this pianist from like late 1800, eight, late 1800s, Italy who, like, uh, the, the movie is in English, by the way, and there's, like, this American con man who's, like, a lovable con man who falls in love with his nurse, who's a young woman, and then Peter Lorre is this guy in this dude's estate who's, like, doing all this astrological research and uh, with all these books, and basically the inciting incident is, like, the con man and the nurse are trying to get away to, like, have their own lives, but um, Ingram, who's the pianist, like, slowly realizes this, and in this, like, moment of, like, Sadness and desperation, like he accidentally falls down his staircase and dies. Well, he leaves everything in his will to Julie, the nurse. But then this family, like the brother-in-law and his nephew come in and try to like find this older will and get all the inheritance to them, which they think they rightly really own. And then um, eventually this disembodied hand starts strangling people and oh. the special effects for 1946 are really good. Right. It's actually, um, I think the strongest inspiration for, th- uh, I think it's It from the Adams family. Yeah. So um, that oh. was really good. Yeah.
1: Was it it or was it thing? It was, oh, it was cousin.
3: It was the hairy yeah. monster, and thing was the hand. You're right. Um, so in in the Addams family, because it had a lower budget, it always would just come out of a box. Mm. But in the Adams family movie from the 90s, it did like run around with digital effects, and they do a really good job in the and it's like especially like Invisible Man level special effects. If you ever seen that classic horror movie, too, like really good. And then the last couple of things I did. Um, so I just write a Halloween horror story. Uh, Call and this year it was the Lost Journals of Nellie Bly Clash of the Kaiju. Um, so I got really into Nellie Bly when I read her Around the World in Seven in seventy and seventy two days, and there was a Penguin collection of it. Um, she's just like this incredible journalist, like feminist pioneer, and I thought, well, like kind of imagine, like, well, it was a story that they wouldn't have let her publish. And so I was like, and I like that whole, like, globetrotting adventure style. So it's like, okay, like, she went to Japan and talked to Japan a lot in that journal, like, in, the, in those series of articles. And it was this cool glimpse into Japanese culture that I'm really fascinated by. So it's like, let's imagine she brought home a cursed object unknowingly. <laughs> And then um, I, I like Cosmic Horror and like Halloween a couple years ago. Like I always read something for Halloween 2 this year. And I haven't finished it, but I need to. It's uh, Clive Barker's Mr. Be Gone. Okay. Because I never I, – Hellraiser, I've tried to watch it. I'm trying to finish it, but it's like just too much for me sometimes. Yeah. But the book is incredible. It's about <laughs> this demon that gets trapped in a book. And so a lot of it's written in second person. But um, that's a really good book. But, like, so, but like, a couple years ago, I read, like, a ton of Lovecraft because I'd never read any Lovecraft, so I just read as much as I could. And I like Cosmic Horror, and I like Conan the Barbarian, and, like, they, like, Robert E. Howard, who wrote Cranley, and, like, they share some of a universe. They correspond, and they have a lot of the same monsters. So it's like, what if this cursed object that she has was, like, going to somehow summon an old one? And there's all these cliches. I, don't, I mean, I call them cliches, but they're basically just, like, conventions that, Lovecraft used like there are themes he repeated over and over so he pioneered them but one of them is like whenever any bad shit goes down it's always on Samane or the spring equinox which I forget that the name is because there's always like going back to like old pagan and druidism and so I thought well what would be a good Halloween story would be like something's going to happen on Samane so the idea was that he has to bring her back he has to convince her to go to Japan with him so that they can re- uh, return this, like, stolen, cursed artifact. It's, uh, it's um, a charm for Suijin, who's the Shinto water deity. Okay. And so he convinces her to go back to Japan with him. They meet a couple Japanese people, like an ambassador named Shinzo Yamamoto, and Takeshi, who's, like, basically the brute bodyguard, like, badass warrior. Um, and they go to Suijin Temple, and basically, like... Lovecraft, of course, because it's written in this. It's it's basically, if you've ever read the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen comic books, where they blend like literature and like present this world where these literary characters are real. And so there are sci-fi and fantasy elements, but it's also very historical and grounded in history. Right. Um, so basically, the premise is that these cultists are after the charm of Suogen, and they're going to use that to summon the um, old one, Bokrog, who's in a story called The Doom from Sarnath. And so what it eventually comes to is that the reason it's called Clash of the Kaiju is because they both get summoned, and there's this kaiju battle in 1920s Kochi, which is a Japanese port city. And you guys will have to read the rest to see how that turns out we uh we shared it on our facebook
1: page if you want to go scroll through there and you can also find it on the american fantastic website right? yeah
3: and there's also an audio version because i know a lot of people don't have time to sit and stare at a Korean screen but if you want to yeah. listen to it in your car you can look up american fantastic theater on apple Podcasts or google podcasts Um it can also be downloaded directly from AmericanFantastic.com. um it's not too rough around the edges there's still an arithmetic mistake in it so if anybody can find it just some basic addition and, uh, and subtraction but uh the reason I got mixed up is because I thought she went around the world in 1872, but that's because I had the whole s- around the world in 72 days thing stuck in my head. Um, so yeah, she would have been like eight years old then. So it's more like 1890s, but anyway, <laughs> but yeah, we're going to get back to Nellie Bly later in the episode. So enough about that, but thanks for letting me talk about my story. Um, so yeah, I'd love it. If anybody reads it, um, y- yeah, hit me. There's an American fantastic Facebook page. You can follow or American fantastic at com. But, A lot of times, and Andrew, you know about this, like if you write, you feel like you're writing into the void. Sometimes you're writing more for yourself and you're like convincing friends and family to read it. But if you ever want to make any kind of artist feel happy, tell them you read your work and you liked it and like give them some constructive criticism. If you read it and you think it's shit, just keep that to yourself. (laughs) But if you like it, like it's like seriously the fuel to the fire and it's like feeds the muse and all that. You
1: also have a a book available at Carmichael's, right? Yeah,
3: it's called Delusions of Grangeurs, uh, Stories and Poems. Everything on it can be read for free at AmericanFantastic.com. But if you want to support me directly, you can buy that at Carmichael's bookstore. You can order it directly from AmericanFantastic.com. If you become a Patreon member for as little as a dollar a month, you get that book um, as part of your your membership costs. And um, there is a um, nauseating online national retailer that you can buy the book from if you absolutely have to and i will own up to my hypocrisy and then i buy some things to him, from them every now and then when i have to but yeah if you have any other way and like i said i will ship it to you directly um i can even sign it if you know me in louisville i'll sign it for you um so please 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 do it that way but if you absolutely can't understand if that's just the way you re- regularly read books i got you but yeah that is my book um and yeah it's it So I'm working on a novel. It's called The Valley of the Windriners. You can read a three-chapter preview on American Fantastic. It's about um, little magical people kind of on Mm. the scale of like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Um, They ride on the backs of birds, and they have this telepathic bond with them and can cast magic, like elemental magic, like Avatar, The Last Airbender. Right. Um, and they they have to go through an initiation. That's the first part of the book. But the three-chapter preview is the first arc of the book when they go through that initiation and some shit goes down. And the idea is um, my word goal is 40,000 words because that's how long Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone is. <laughs> and um, it's also... Uh, like, gonna be the first part of a trilogy if I can, you know, if I stay alive long enough to write the other two. But it, the idea is it's not just a YA fantasy novel, it's a YA fantasy novel that'll have universal appeal. So, if you're into fantasy books, if you like YA, if you like Harry Potter, like, I'm not just writing it for little kids, it's dedicated to my daughter Gaia so once she reads it when i grow up like that'll be worth all the effort but it's going to be one of those things where if you're into that um definitely check it out so it's called valley of the wind writers there's a three chapter preview on americanfantastic.com if anybody is willing i have a friend named joshua who's already reading for straps and helping me edit if you have time if you want to do that if you want to read some nerdy shit um hit me up i'll put you in the acknowledgments page and um, especially if you have anybody between the ages of nine and twelve that you think would be into it um It is appropriate for kids. There's no cussing. There's no extreme violence. There's no explicit sex or anything like that. Um, There is an intersex character, but it's more for representation than for anything, um, you know, overtly sexual. So, yeah, and and they will get in the acknowledgments, too, even if it's just their first name. I'm looking for readers, and I'd love to look for some young readers. So AmericanFantastic at gmail.com. You would get a first draft. You get a free copy of the book, and you get in the acknowledgments if you have the time and energy to give me feedback. Sounds
1: good. Do you guys want to get into today's episode? Let's I'd love to. to. Do it. Yeah. Oh. Um, so, <laughs> Halloween just uh, came and went, and we didn't get to do a, a proper Halloween episode. But I wanted to talk mm-hmm. about a strange little tale of the extra special talking mongoose.
0: Mm, have you guys?
1: Have you guys heard of this?
3: No. No. It sounds really cool. mongoose is one of those animals that, like, I love the name, but I can never like. Like, I'm picturing a platypus, but I know that's not right.
1: (laughs) It's not quite a platypus. It's It's more like a, a it looks kind of like a platypus. It is a a small mammal of the same shape. (laughs) Um, So in 1916, on the Isle of Man, uh, there was a man named James Irving and his family. And uh, they met a small creature who they named Jeff, G-E-F.
3: They kind of look like ferrets or chinchillas, but they're striped or like meerkats. Kind of, yeah. Okay. Uh,
1: A lot of people uh, during um, British occupation of India, uh, mongooses eat uh, snakes, poisonous snakes. And so a lot of people would keep them um, in order to keep their houses safe from snakes. Um, So in 1931, this small mongoose named Jeff appeared to the Irvings. Um, They started hearing tappings and knockings that they initially assumed was a mouse and subsequently thought to be a small weasel uh, or maybe a stout trapped somewhere in their farmhouse. On October 20th, James and Voirai finally got a glimpse of the creature, a yellow and brown rat-like animal with a long bushy tail. Uh, The animal lingered, continuing to make noise, but by December these noises had become distinctly less animal. And they sounded, the Irvings would later tell the Isle of Man Examiner, similar to a baby child beginning to talk. Before long, the family heard definite words issuing from the walls of their farmhouse. (laughs) (laughs) More curious than frightened, they tried to teach the strange new visitor nursery nursery rhymes, which within a week he could
3: repeat back to them. Andrew, I have a question real quick. What's up? Is this fiction or nonfiction? This is nonfiction. Oh,
1: shit.
2: (laughs) Sleep well tonight. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Soon he could speak fluently and conversationally. From that time on, the examiner reported this queer body has repeated parts of their conversations, has discussed their private lives with them, and has retailed gossip gleaned from the outside. Jeff not only spoke English, but in time also picked up other languages, including bits of French, German, Yiddish, Flemish, Spanish, and Hebrew. He enjoyed singing songs and telling jokes, could change shape, and appeared to be clairvoyant.
3: So how, like, okay, give me an example of his clairvoyance. Like, he's able to know things that people are thinking about but not talking?
1: Supposedly, he could cause hallucinations, uh-huh. he could um, pick up on things that the family were thinking, uh, and he could intuit their moods.
3: And did they ever see him while he was talking, or was it more like they heard this this mongoose scratching from the other side of the wall, and they'd hear voices coming from there?
1: I believe that they say that they've seen him talking. Okay. Because what
3: so uh, what I'm kind of, ima- cause I'm really in a paranormal yeah. phenomenon and there's this podcast called mysterious universe that I listen to a lot and kind of what this reminds me of is there's this mongoose in the wall, yeah. but then there's also this spirit in the house that can talk and do all of these things. And it's like the people projecting that onto the mongoose, which is cool either way. Um, but there's also like trickster spirits and things that could like, I'm just going to decide to get in, to take the form of a mongoose to these people and like, have all these weird conversations so it's just kind of like i don't know my mind is like thinking of all these and because i'm into the paranormal into that i'm not like thinking about like the practical like <laughs> well they were having hallucinations because there was this weird mushroom they were eating no <laughs> that stuff is not how this shit happens <laughs> but um it is really cool like just this picturing this mongoose like sitting and like curled up and like, you know, they're all sipping tea from their saucers and it's just going on in Flemish about whatever he's <laughs> thinking about.
1: So the bad news that I have for you is that the person who recorded the story, who is paranormal, um, paranormal researcher Christopher Joseph, mm-hmm. who wrote the book, Jeff, uh, The Strange Tale of an Extra Special Talking Mongoose. Uh, <laughs> he came to the conclusion that it was probably made up or possibly
3: a hoax by the family.
2: Yeah.
3: And not scary boo. No. So nobody outside the family ever witnessed? or It was just kind of like this old yarn they would tell people? Yeah. Yes,
1: but this is where it gets interesting. Everybody on the island who they talked to about the mongoose, at first they disbelieved them, but they knew the family and that they knew the family was trustworthy. And the more time they spent with the family, the more they began to believe the story, even though they never saw it. The mongoose Or any proof of them
3: You know one thing I'm wondering And I don't know If this is confirmed In any of the books But if this mongoose Is clairvoyant It would be cool if Because there's always Like gossip on these towns Like if the mongoose Picked up on something That somebody Was happening Outside the home And then they had Like initiated The conversations with him, And that would That would to me Would confirm belief Is like Well how did you know That was going on with us Mm -hmm. Yeah Um Let's see
1: Uh The father, James Irving, he contradicted himself in his retellings of the stories of the mongoose. Hmm. Uh, At one point, he said that he never said it was a mongoose. (laughs) He writes in one letter, I don't think he is an animal. I think he's a spirit in animal form, which you have talked about. In another letter, however, he directly contradicts himself and says, undoubtedly, he's a species of mongoose. Oh, my God. But whether a hybrid or not, I cannot say. But (laughs) whether a hybrid. (laughs) Um, The mongoose... Got some names, the Dolby Spook, uh, the Talking Mongoose. Um, It's possible that it was taken from some kind of myth from the area, a Manx myth, a fairy tale, something like that.
3: I know fairy culture is very strong in Europe and especially like Island Man, and so it wouldn't be... And I I don't know what era... I know in the late... So in the Victorian era, Mm. there was a huge resurgence of spiritualism in Europe and in America. Like, is this overlap with that time at all or after that uh, time
1: this was in the 19, early 1930s so
3: I think it would be on the wane and that was also line. when like charlatanism started kind of spoiling it Yeah, but um, there is definitely like a big huge influence in British culture about fae and fairy and like Icelandic culture and Scandinavian <laughs> culture so the idea of a talking animal spirit might not be quite as far fetched to them as like you know an American in 2019
1: right yeah. that's pretty cool though he also had a bit of a, um, a mean streak. Apparently he told, uh, uh, the father Irving, uh, if you're kind to me, I will bring you good luck. If you're not kind, I will kill all of your poultry. <laughs> Which I guess is
3: something that mongoose could do. Yeah. Fuck up some chickens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: um, you don't know what damage or harm I will do. I might do if aroused, uh, I could kill you all if I liked, but I won't. Um, so a weird he's a talking, singing, joke-telling mongoose who also has a mean streak.
3: What's the, um, Monty Python in the Holy Grail? There's like, there's rabbits in the cave. Yeah. Oh I think I could see this mongoose like <laughs> going after some chickens or some, um, knights of the round table.
1: Bring out the holy hand grenade. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, As I said earlier, the conclusion gradually becomes inescapable as you read Joseph's book that Jeff was a creation of either the daughter or the father. Um, But it's interesting because why would the whole family go along with this if that was the case? Um, Is it some kind of man weasel? Is it a family pet? Is it imagination? Why would the daughter invent such a strange creature? Um, she may have been like, uh, lonely living out in this isolated area of the island. Um, and she may have been intellectually curious and invented this, but then why does the father go r- along with it?
3: Yeah. So I have a few ideas about this. One is that she had an imaginary friend and as, as intense as I am in a peripheral phenomenon, a lot of imaginary friends are actually spirits that children can see because children and animals, it's like their filter isn't as developed. Right. So they see things and can talk to spirits and like humans, because we're rational or adults, we try to explain like, no, they're imaginary. They're not real, but to the kids, they are real. So it might've been that she saw or experienced this talking mongoose, but then as she got older, you know, like maybe cause she might have some psychic abilities or clairvoyance herself. And then like, because it's really embarrassing to just say, oh yeah, I'm like having all of these ideas. Like you like put it on the mongoose. Um, The other idea I have, and this is a pattern with a lot of paranormal phenomena that people make public, is there will be some paranormal events that occur, and it doesn't sound like they were making money off of it, but they were at least, like, esteemed by their friends, and and so it's, like, it has to keep going. If you want to, like, get any sort of, like, social cred from it, I mean, it doesn't have to, but it's, like, if you want to keep experiencing that, so sometimes what will happen, there will be paranormal phenomenon, but then there's hoaxes that follow or exaggerations that follow because... You gotta keep, you know, pumping the juice. Right. So that's those are two ideas that I have.
1: Uh I can disprove the money one because the um the mongoose the reputation for the talking mongoose, uh, it caused the value of the farm to decrease by about half what the father had paid for it. Wow, okay. So he was not making any money on yeah, in fact was losing. Well that would actually
3: like confirm like make it more likely that they weren't doing it for monetarily, yeah. Um
1: The Jeff sightings gradually died down in about 1945. Um, There were people who had asked for proof of it. At one point, James Irving sent dog hair um, into one one investigator, which was easily confirmed as dog hair and probably came from the family dog. (laughs) But then why would James send easily disproved evidence like that? Um, and there are a whole bunch of questions like that, like yeah. what was the motive? Why are they doing this? Um,
3: it's almost like he experienced some sort of doubt. Yeah. And for a while, he knew he was right, but then when he kept getting all this doubt, like he felt like instead of just not caring what people thought, it was like, no, you have to believe me. And so he would do these things that, like, naively, he thought he could bluff. But right. then, in retrospect, it's like, dude. <laughs>
1: Um, but I thought it was a cool Halloween story, and if you want to learn more, uh, it's Christopher Joseph, J-O-S-I-F-F-E, uh, and the book is called Jeff, G-E-F, exclamation mark, The Strange Tale of an Extra-Special Talking Mongoose. Goose. Uh, Rachel.
3: That's
2: really good. What do
1: you have for us this week?
2: Um, so today, I just, I was watching a thing about the 70s and about cults, and I'm going to talk about one of the most popular cults the people's temple the disciples of christ i.e jim jones and the kool-aid right speaking Mm -hmm. of you know oh wait that wasn't the other thing about Well, Well, this this is
3: kind of a halloween thing it's like just mass suicide i mean even if it didn't take place in halloween that's some pretty grim shit (laughs)
2: um so this isn't just gonna talk about jim jones although he is the people's temple it's gonna talk about basically that line of how he created the church and then what happened um what's really weird is it doesn't really go into the mass suicide a lot, I think, because, I mean, it's really gruesome, which we'll get to at the end. Right. So before forming a church, we're going to skip his childhood. Um, I don't care if he had a shitty childhood. It doesn't make up for what he does. (laughs) Um, Jim Jones had become enamored with communism Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and was frustrated by the harassment communists received in the U.S. This, among other things, provided a clerical inspiration for Jim Jones, as he described in a biographical recording. Of course, he did. I decided, how can I demonstrate my Marxism? The thought was infiltrate the church, so I consciously made a decision to look into that prospect.
3: That's really sad because it's like, that's a totally kick ass thing to do if you hadn't convinced a bunch of people <laughs> to kill themselves.
2: Yep. <laughs> and it's all, and all well, this is also bullshit, too. It's, he thinks he, I don't know. We'll get into it in a little bit. But so in 1952, um, he became a pastor of Somerset Southside Methodist Church. Do you know where he was? Where? and great old Indianapolis. the <laughs> <laughs> that's where all the crazies come what? from. <laughs> so this is like 60s, 70s era now? Uh, 52, early 52. 50s. Okay,
3: So he was really young then. Mm-hmm. Okay,
2: But left the church because it barred him from integrating African-Americans into his congregation. That's one thing he had going for him was integration. Um, so in 1954, Jim Jones began his own church in a rented space in Indianapolis at first naming it the Com- Community Un- Unity Church. Um, Jim Jones had previously witnessed a faith healing service at the Seventh day Baptist, because we all know about our Baptists, and concluded that such healings could attract people and generate income, helping to accomplish his social goals. Yep. Jones and Temple members knowingly faked healings because they found that the increased faith generated financial resources to help the poor and finance the church. Well, that's a tradition that Shocking. continues to yep, this it's
3: day. it's still going; it <laughs>
1: have, has not stopped. Have you ever seen any of the the fake spiritual healings?
3: Well, I just remember I've seen
2: like clips. I maybe. mean, I remember growing up. Out. I can't watch
3: it. I was a kid in the '80s, and I vaguely remember like because televangelism was huge in yeah. the late '80s, early '90s, and seeing stuff like that. But like, there's still like crazy YouTube montages of like you mm-hmm. know, you put your hand on. the Their head and then they shake or like the people that yeah they like leave their crutches or they get up from their walkers and it's just
2: (laughs) it's just like i can't like it almost it makes me cringe almost well i guess
3: people false hope too which is really sad it really is and then they're also the same ones donating money so it's economically exploited too Mm -hmm.
2: um these healings involved chicken livers and other animal tissues claimed by jones and um temple members to be cancerous tissues removed from the body yeah fucked up (laughs) At
1: some point it's kind of, Oh no, he's
2: speaking to
3: us. Oh yeah. our hat. So I have an American fantastic hat as a lampshade in our studio. And it finally, um, the bill fell from the string I have holding it up. So as Rachel was talking, um, the light, do you guys want that light to stay on or I can turn it off? Oh no, it's fine. Okay.
2: Um,
1: a bunch of the videos of his faith healing, it looks like magic tricks, because he'll be like this, and then he'll pull a, a piece of meat out. Oh, really? And he'll be holding it, yeah, oh. and he'll be like uh, pulling things. Here's your liver. You're here's, fine. Go here's for. the cancer.
2: <laughs> oh, Jesus. So in 1956, um, Jones bought his first church in a racially mixed Indianapolis neighborhood. He first named the church Wings of Deliverance. Great. And later that year, he named it the People's Temple Full Gospel Church. That is a mouthful. Um, And that was the first time he used the phrase the People's Temple. Um, in order to increase publicity, he organized large religious conventions with other Pentecostal pastors, with um, Jones continuing to disguise the fact that he was using uh, religion to further his political ideology. Those conventions drew as many as 11,000
3: attendees. And then, like, so he's putting forward his political ideology is it still explicitly leftist at this point like it's it's not um, changed yep, since it, okay
2: I'll go into it it's a little further when he kind of declares how he's uh, it's different okay. I believe I'm sure uh, <laughs> I just did this like yesterday um doo-doo-doo. so these uh, conducted healings uh, impressed attendees because they revealed private information, usually numbers such as addresses, phone numbers, or social security numbers, which private detectives could easily discover beforehand. Um, duh. So, <laughs> in, my, in February of 1960, so this is like eight years after he started the whole thing, or like started his idea, I guess. He, the temple, opened up a soup kitchen for the poor and expanded their social services to include rent assistance, job placement services, free canned goods, clothing, and coal for winter heating. I mean, that all sounds actually spectacular. That's that's
3: the thing that's so sad about this. Is he's, because I'm a, I was raised Catholic and, and Jesus was a radical. Like, he did Mm -hmm. want to, like, help the poor and, like, wanted, you know, care more about the poor and people in need than the rich and so it's like this guy is doing so many things that are explicitly christ-like but then he's also like the same kind of charlatan and pharisee that Mm -hmm. jesus was riling against in his time so it's such a paradox
0: yeah
2: so during this time jones had read extensively about father divine the founder of the international peace peace mission movement um jones and temple members visited divine several times while jim jones studied his writing and tape recordings of his sermons um they printed his text for members and began to preach that members should abstain from sex and only adopt children. And that's where we all take a big turn. <laughs> mm. <laughs> right?
3: Okay. When anytime Just you me. get into <laughs> population control, that's really dicey. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you all could feel me rolling my eyes. So. <laughs> in
2: 1959, in a sermon in his um, temple, he tested his new fiery rhetoric style that Divine had used. His speech captivated members with lulls and crescendos, of course. As Jim Jones challenged individuals in front of the group, the speech also marks the beginning of the temple's underlying us versus them message, which is, i.e., what a fucking cult is. Mm-hmm. Um, Jones carefully wove in that the temple's home for senior citizens, citizens was established on the basis from each according to his ability to each according to his need, quoting Karl Marx's critique of the Gotha program. Um, he did so knowing that his Christian audience would recognize the similarities with texts from the Act of Apostles, which... Stated, distribution was made to each as any had need. Um, He would repeatedly cite that passage to show that Jesus was a communist, while at the same time attacking much of the text of the Bible. Um, Do do do. I don't need to go through that. Um, Of course, Jones preached an imminent nuclear holocaust, as they all do. Yep. (laughs) Not not really, but a
3: lot. Well, they still do. There's that. Is it Buchanan? The guy from the 700 Club. Pat Buchanan. Pat Buchanan. Yeah, they're always yeah. talking about how there's this like mm-hmm. impending collapse, yeah. and this is when it's going to happen, and that's also the people selling like the giant buckets of macaroni that you're supposed to put in the fallout shelter, so it still like yeah. resonates.
2: Yep, imminent nuclear holocaust, after which the surviving elect would create a new socialist Eden on Earth. In 1965, he predicted this would occur on July 15th, 1967. Yeah. Accordingly, <laughs> Jones <laughs> preached... That the temple must must move to Redwood Valley, California. So in July he led approximately 140 members, half of whom were black, to Redwood Valley and officially opened his church there. Um said the addition of deputy district attorney Timothy Stowen greatly increased the temple's credibility in the area area, quickly increasing even more members. Um mm-mm-mm. And then basically it just talks about how they use Greyhound buses to go out to other cities in California and basically recruit people. Mm-hmm. And they did that. Um, it even well, said he told members that the temple would not bother scheduling a trip unless it could net $100,000.
3: It's neat, though, that he's doing that in a way because, okay, so like late 60s California, this is like a lot of Black Panthers and doing uh-huh. the same kind of thing, like uh-huh. giving cold to people, food to people. Like, So it's almost like he's there's so much overlap. Mm-hmm. And he goes to this, like, very racially diverse state. And it just seems like it's so weird because it's, like, it's so good on one hand, but then it's also so, like, nefarious on the other, like, I don't know. It's just I, I did not realize that this man was so many... Like, such a paradox. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Because I always thought
3: of him as this, like, super villain that just convinced a bunch of people. he is a
2: super villain. But I don't go into, like, that because I'm just kind of talking about the religion Mm -hmm. as a whole. Because he would take, like, a two-parter for me. Yeah. Um, But we can talk about what we know about (laughs) him. Um so, despite exaggerated claims by the temple of 20,000 or more members, one source claims its greatest actual regis- registered membership was around 3,000, which is still nothing to like not brag about, I think. However, 5,000 individual members' membership card photos were located in the temple records after its dissolution.
1: Okay.
2: Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, regardless of its official membership, the temple regularly drew 3,000 people to its San Francisco services alone when they were holding services there. Um, of particular interest to politicians was the temple's ability to produce two thousand people for work or attendance in San Francisco on only six hours' notice. Um, oh yeah, the temple aroused police suspicion after Jones praised the radical Bay Area group, the Symbianese Sim- Simbi- Liberation Army. Oh wait, is that the? Um- that's the army that took Patty Hearst. Okay, yes. yeah, that's right. Okay. And that's how we got the Saucon syndrome thing. When I well, saw that I like chuckled to myself a bit and like they're all connected <laughs> <laughs> And its leaders attended and its leaders attended San Francisco temple meetings. Um I just remember on an episode of Drunk History when they're talking about the Petty Hearst and the lady says the SLA, the Symbianese Liberation Army, she's like, that's not even a word, so they're not even smart. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah, there's no Symbia that I know. Yeah. Maybe that's where, like, Mus- Simba settled after the events of the Lion King. Yeah, know. that's what
2: I always think of. Um So after tensions rose between the temple and the Nation of Islam in San Francisco, the group held a large spiritual jubilee in the L.A. Convention Center attended by thousands, including prominent political uh, prominent political figures to heal the rift. Um, so basically we'll cut to 1974. The People's Temple signed a lease to rent land in Guyana. The community created on this property was called the People's Temple's Agriculture Project. Right or informally, Jonestown. Because, mm-hmm. um, of course, Jim Jones at this time now considered himself a Christ-like figure and not just a preacher. Um, it had as few as 50 residents as in early 1977. So not that many people were there at the beginning, but, I mean, it's a whole other country. Um, Jim Jones saw Jonestown as both a socialist paradise and a sanctuary from media scrutiny that had started with... Um, these articles that a former temp- Temple member had said that the um, – basically the article said that the Temple moved to Jonestown because in 74 what we saw in the United States was creeping fascism, I guess. Um,
3: well, that was Nixon too. So that was like uh-huh. creeping yep. and gaining speed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: So – It said um, another thing. It said the temple concluded that Guyana was a place that a place in a black country where our black members could live in peace. It was a socialist government, and it was the only English-speaking country in South America. Um, after Jones left for Guyana, he encouraged temple members, obviously, to follow him there. The population grew to over 900 people by late 1978. So in just like a year or. Where was it? In less than a year, it went from 50 people to 900 people. Oops. That's um, quite the population. That is explosion. quite the jump. Yeah. Those who moved there were promised a tropical paradise free from the supposed wickedness of the outside world.
3: Duh. So I'm looking at... Because I... <laughs> For whatever reason, I might I, I pride myself on knowing a lot about geography not being one of those ignorant Americans. The whole time you're saying Guyana, I'm appreciating I'm pre- this like African Republic no, somewhere. No, it's just south. Yeah, it's, just it's, south, it's east of Venezuela and left of a surname? Yeah, Suriname.
2: Yeah. That's
3: how I pronounce Suriname, it. Okay. Suriname, okay. Has a dense rainforest, calypso music. It actually sounds really cool. It I, does. I feel ashamed that I didn't know that it was in <laughs> South <laughs> America. Um,
2: so on November 17th, 1978 so all these things were happening and this congressman kept hearing things about it because some people were able to come back or like some former members stayed in california but they have family members go there and they like are cut off and they kind of knew how it was so this actual congressman who gave a shit about people leo <laughs> ryan from the San Francisco area, invested claims of abuse with the temples, which this is why we're not getting to Jim Jones, because he literally abused people. And so did people in his like hierarchy did. Yep. Abused and did everything you could possibly do. Brainwashed, obviously.
3: There's people. so many echoes of Scientology, too. Mm-hmm. Like I keep thinking this is like the blueprint. Not like yes. exactly the blueprint, it's, but it's kind of. the first
2: of... run of Scientology. Yeah. yeah, it's
3: the prototype. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Abuse within the People's Temple visited Jonestown. During Ryan's visit, a number of temple members expressed a desire to leave with him. They, like, handed the notes saying, can we come back with you? Um, and on November 18th, and there's some, like, video recordings of it. Yeah. It's creepy. They accompanied Ryan to the local airstrip at Port Katuma. There, they were intercepted by self-styled temple security guards who opened fire on the group, killing Ryan three journalists and one of the defectors.
3: Wait, they killed the Congress person. Yeah. Yep. He,
2: he died.
3: How is this not like a major international? I mean, maybe it was back then, but it was Because of what at the happens time? next. Okay. Oh yeah. <laughs> kind of took precedence. Yeah, that makes sense. Um,
2: and actually I do, I was watching something the other day and his aide um, was shot five times and pretended to be dead and waited 22 hours to get airlifted to a hospital and survived. Gives me goosebumps. In not a good way. Um, a few seconds of gunfire from the incident were captured on video by Bob Brown. One of the journalists killed in the attack. Um, I don't think, I think once you hear the gunshots, they always cut the video to black now. Cause yeah. like, that's not okay. Um, so that evening in Jonestown, Jim Jones ordered his congregation to drink a concoction of cyanide slays, not Kool-Aid, but great flavored flavor aid
3: mm-hmm.
2: pictures. And, um,
3: I bet Kool-Aid has been fighting that fight <laughs> since. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs>
2: But you can't get the, don't drink the Kool-Aid. I mean, yeah, it's everyone, part of our
0: yeah, yeah.
2: culture. Um, and if you see the pictures they're what's so weird is they're like not in their homes, they're not all lying down or they're not all like spots that are all literally standing together yeah. or like they're all in the field together. And it is horrifying. Um, and all 918 people died, including 276 children. So a third of that basically were children. It was the greatest single loss of an American civilian life in a deliberate act until September 11th. And this includes four that died at the temple headquarters in Georgetown that night. And then, like, I didn't really look into and I didn't really want to look into the conspiracies of, like, how many people did it like themselves, or were forced to do it.
3: Well, I imagine a lot of the children were probably just oh, told, well, like, hey, children, mommy and like, daddy. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: They
1: didn't know, but... One of the things that he had done, like, in the months and years leading up to this, is they would have trial runs, where they would just drink Kool-Aid, but he would be like, you know... This is this is real thing. Oh, and then and say then, it's a test. Uh, yeah. And then after they would all survive, he'd be like, that was a test. You, fa- you passed. And so they probably just got into the, the muscle memory oh, habit yeah. of doing it's that. It's
3: like the fire drill where uh, they tell yeah. you at the end of the fire drill, we all die to go to heaven, but, like, that time they actually all did die. <laughs> yeah.
2: um, but what you think is weird about this is, like, usually I what I think is kind of different is usually when it's a leader doing this, the leader doesn't mm-hmm. join them. But he did. He was part of it. He didn't, like, run away or, like, still survive. He also
3: killed himself. It reminds me a lot of, I think I was introduced to this idea in Schindler's List, but how many Nazis um, dosed their children and poisoned them before they committed suicide. And I think there was also scenes in that where, like, Nazis were about to take over hospitals, and they knew everybody was going to get liquidated anyway. So a lot of the patients that they knew already knew were going to die were euthanized by poison before. And it's just, like, that idea of giving people poison unwittingly because you think you know what's better for them. And I'm sure that if they were going to be taken to Buchenwald, yeah, it probably was better to just die in their hospital bed. But, like, these kids and, like, these people, it's just, like, I can't imagine. Riot.
2: Yeah. Um, not too much goes after this. All I know is, like, obviously the entire, all their temples, were headquarters were under siege by the FBI and the CIA. Um, some people wanted to know about, like, certain higher-ups, I think. But even the Freedom of Information Act redacts so much stuff that you can't really get much information on these people. Um, And then the mass suicide of the People's Temple, I think this is kind of an interesting note to end on, has helped embed in the public mind that the idea that all new religious movements are destructive. Um, But Brian R. Wilson argues against that view by pointing out that only five such events have occurred with similar religious groups where you like all care yourselves, and that's the Branch Davidians, Davidians, Solar Temple, Amsh... Shiriniko, and then Heaven's Gate.
3: Um, Shinrikyo. Yeah, Shinrikyo.
2: <laughs> and I've heard about Heaven's Gate and the Solar Temple and the Branch Davidians. I'm not really familiar with those.
3: I remember, so my my dad used to listen, well, yeah, used to listen to 700 WLW in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just the news program. And they had some really funny, like this guy named Gary Burbank that would do all these voices, but it's basically a conservative AM talk radio when it wasn't, it was also where the Cincinnati Reds were broadcast. But I remember listening, like, during the siege. And then it was in Waco. Mm-hmm. That's, and then I can't remember the was this is David something like right like the guy there was yeah. a cult leader there yeah and, and basically that was like a standoff and then instead of like fighting the FBI well they, I think there was like a fire started and then there was a siege yeah. and I think it was like a big controversy because Clinton was in office and they were saying like mm-hmm. the kind of like um, See, pushed it too far
2: that belongs in here but they say it's because of the tanks going in but I don't know I think it was both.
3: Yeah, it's... So maybe
2: Brian R. Wilson is wrong. <laughs> but, and it's also, like, it's really weird because cults were really, really big in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. So like, is this the reason cults, like, dissolved? But it was it also the time that cults were just dying well, because... I think Manson Rangan also...
3: <laughs> well, Manson <laughs> I also, I think, like, gave oh, cults a bad name, too. Because it was a very yeah. small one, but, like, they're the ones that murdered Sharon Tate. And he was this, yeah. like, leader to them. And, yeah... I know. I guess it's weird, like, because it's funny, too, how cult is in our vernacular, because now, like, a cult film is just, like, an yeah, indie hit. and like totally different. And the analogy, I guess, is just, like, you're just devoted to this film or piece of Paul as you would be to a cult. But um, at least, like, even the the most cultish movie isn't, like, you're going to, like, get to the end of the VHS, and then, I guess, because the VHS tells you to, like, jump off a cliff or something. <laughs> <laughs> then you do it. Yeah, exactly.
2: Well, there's a little snippet about the people's temple.
3: All right. So it's my good. turn now or? Right. Yeah. You okay. want to tell us about Nellie Bly? Yeah. So, um, I went to the Southwest Regional Library with my daughter. They have a maker's lab there and, um, I'm really nerdy and starting, we started a D&D campaign and there's this, um, place where you can design 3D, um, models to print out and like the The easiest the cheapest way to do it is you download them and try to print them yourselves or the company will um do it for you and so there's a maker lab there and i went and then while i was there there was a um there was a bunch of displays out and um it was a way it's called hero forge by the way is where you can um design your own 3d miniatures so i wanted to try to do it myself and while i was there there was like i i you know, Because when I'm in a library, I can't just go there for the reason I went there. i got to look at things. And then on the display, right. they had um, The Lost Journeys of Nellie Bly. They also had um, Oil by Upton Sinclair, which I covered in an episode of Season 2 of Hip Squared. But after I got done reading Oil, I started reading um, Around the World in 72 Days, which is a collection of Nellie Bly's writings. Um, it's an anthology. The one I got specifically is the one by um, Penguin and it's got a black some text black text on the bottom and there's an oval portrait of an illustration of Nellie Bly when she went around the world Um, so that's what she's best known for and uh, the reason she went around the world in 18 in 72 days it was it was kind of like stunt journalism of the time so this is like during the the paper wars between um, Hearst and Pulitzer and you'd always try to see who could outdo each other and um, and because she was a pioneering feminist, it was neat that a woman was doing it because Phineas Flagg, who's the fictional version in Jules Verne novels, Course of Man. Um, so that's how she's a lot well-known today, but she was also an incredible journalist. And I'm going to kind of go through uh, uh, her life story. And because that was her profession and her career, the work that she did is interwoven in that. Um mm-hmm. So the, the book that I would recommend, Around the World in 72 Days, get the Penguin collection because it's an anthology of her work, and it does her early writing. It has a whole lot from Around the World in, uh, in 72 Days, but also has her later periods, too. So you get, like, a, there are collections that are ex- exclusively Around the World in 72 Days, which is confusing because all the titles, like, blur together. But that Penguin edition specifically, um, you'll get a more well-rounded view of her as a writer and a person. So Nellie Bly was actually born Emily Jane Cochran May 5th, 1864, so in the waning days of the Civil War. She lived until January 27th, 1922, and she was 57 years old when she died. Um, And of course, people died younger sometimes in those days, but I mean, she still had more years in her. There was plenty of elderly people there, so um, yeah, the idea that she died in late middle age still kind of raises some eyebrows for me, especially since she was a woman of means. Um, so the way her career as a journalist started is she wrote a letter to the editor um, in response to the article, What Girls Are Good For. Huh. <laughs> and so, yeah, Rachel just got what, what can you imagine in the late 1800s that article would have been about Rachel? Marriage. Yeah, it was basically saying that women were good for having babies and staying at home. Mm-hmm. And this was published in the Pittsburgh Gazette. And um and then Emily's letter asserted what are now bedrock principles of feminism, namely that women should be able to do the same work as men for the same pay, and that there are many things that women can do better than men if given the chance. Um, which is an incredibly, uh, I mean, this was still after um declaration of the rights of rights of women by Mary Wollstonecraft and you know uh, her daughter Mary Shelley had written Frankenstein. So it was like there were like other pioneering feminist intellectuals, but it was just kind of like. It still wasn't accepted at the time. It was still these like radical ideas and the fact that you know, some women would take the time to bother to write a letter to the editor, because it was like, you know, most people would just roll their eyes at that or if they didn't disagree with those ideas. But you know, this was before you had a comment section on Facebook. Yeah. Like this is something that yeah. So, um, let's see, okay. So what happened after she wrote that letter? It was published, and um, in this original letter her pseudonym was Lonely. Orphan girl and George Madden, who was the editor of the Pittsburgh Gazette, ran an ad seeking who the letter writer was, and he offered her a chance to write an article under the same little orphan girl pseudonym. Uh, and by the way, that letter is in the collection that I was mentioning, and so is this article. It's called "The Girl Puzzle," and it was about divorce law reform. So it was a lot harder, of course, for couples to get divorced um, in those days, and, and when there a divorce was achieved, usually. Um, property rights to women. It was very hard. So, you know, women could be impoverished as a result of divorce, which of course kept a lot of people in abusive relationships. And, um, the girl puzzle was her putting forward ideas of how to make divorce work better.
2: Girl's guide to divorce. Exactly.
3: And and like, so yeah, like the late 1800s version of that. Um, so that's, that's also neat because that's another thing that like, we don't really think of divorce in the phenomenon of family law as a feminist issue, but it was because, you know, there's a lot of religions that today still very much prohibit divorce. I was raised Catholic. It's hard. Like you have to get your uh, marriage annulled to get remarried in the Catholic church. And it's just like all this pressure to stay married and this idea that, well, like if this is going to happen anyway, let's figure out the best way to do it. The idea that Nellie Bly was like really thinking about this, especially just after being hired for a good letter to the editor. I mean, this girl had ideas. This woman had ideas. Um, So that was when she was still using the Little Orphan Girls uh, pseudonym. Her next pseudonym, um, I I believe, was given to her when she began writing for the New York World, and that is the pseudonym Nellie Bly, uh, how we know her today. And Nellie is spelled N-E-L-L-I-E, which is actually taken from a Stephen Foster song, Uh, called Nellie Bly with a Y. So this, <laughs> is, this is when we get to some of the naked racism of the late 1800s. Um, I think Stephen Foster, he was the guy that did like Maple Leaf, like, Camp Town songs, and I don't know. He was a very famous, like, basically our equivalent to a popular musician. Mm. So I just want to provide some context um, to who Stephen Foster was, because this is not just somebody that w- you would, like, have not have heard of if you lived in the time... Um, but yeah, it looks like okay. Uh, I guess it was just old timey songs. I don't have a better example than that. <laughs> okay. Nelly was a lady. Is oh, he did do Canton races. Canton races. Sing that song. Do da do da. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that's Stephen Foster, and he wrote this um, song called about Nelly Bly. Not our Nelly Bly, but a different Nelly Bly. Um, and it seems to be a love song written to a mammy kind of character. Um, with phonetic black vernacular like you can imagine in um, like Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn but it was written from the perspective of a white dude of course which is incredibly problematic um, early example of a uh, white cultural appropriation of African-American stereotypes ones that are ultimately destructive so it's just strange that I think of Nellie Bly as this like incredible feminist pioneer but then like the name of Nellie Bly itself has this really dark history right. and It's kind of just like the culture that she was steeped in at the time. It wasn't her fault. She she didn't choose that name. (laughs) So um, this is actually one of the most remarkable works, the asylum expose that she did. So it was called 10 Days in a Madhouse. Speaking of drug history, Rachel, in season two, episode two, that's about Nellie Bly. Mm -hmm. There's at least a segment about Nellie Bly, and they go into the, Mm -hmm. the asylum. So basically what she did, this is incredible investigative journalism. It's got a tinge of gonzo into it, too, because basically what she did... So there were, like, boarding houses for women back in these days. And she got in one of those boarding houses and just started acting crazy. And, like, she didn't know how to. She's just like, well, I'm going to start acting. And, like, so people thought she was sad and melancholy. And so, like, they got to the point where it was just, like, one woman in her with them at the time. But she kept pushing the issue and pushing the issue. So eventually they took her to Blackwell Island, which is where they had the asylum in new york and there's even like this part where she's in front of a judge with a policeman and what her fear is is they're not going to think she's crazy enough so she's actually like really hoping for being thought of as so crazy that they'll put her in there and it's funny reading the book because you think of like every time they think she's a little bit more insane and she can pick up on that she's like yes (laughs) and every time that she's worried she gets like really nervous that they're not going to think that um but in that in that work is where she basically wrote from the inside out what it was like to be in an insane asylum in the late 1800s of course you can imagine like all the kinds of abuses like being put into ice baths um you know just horrible treatment from the staff like emotionally abusive physically abusive environment the fact that it was on an island which just has so many implications um well Speaking of like, like in current events, Rikers Island just got closed, yeah. which is like so that's this history. New York has a history of putting under on islands yeah. and keeping them there. Um the thing I was most impressed about cuz I've heard um I think like NP, like uh, this American life stories where people will go into mental hospitals like either trick themselves into them or go to escape justice or of course like that's what One Flew with the Cuckoo's Nest is yeah. about. But she was able to get out because there she was not a huge Name at the time, but journalists knew who she was, so there were all these journalists coming in, like, We want to talk to Nellie Bly. We heard Nellie Bly is in here, and I guess her editor was well connected enough that he was able to get her out. Um, the other really cool investigative journalism she did before around the world in 72 days is um, she went to Albany, the New York State House, Um, and the term lobbying actually comes from the New York State House where people would be met in the lobby, Mm -hmm. um, politicians, and she. Put, she imposes uh, as the wife of an industrialist. Um, there was a regulatory law that was about to come up, and she said, you know, if this law passes, it's going to really hurt my husband's business. What do I need to do? And she was talking to, like, a person that worked and represented the politicians in the state house. She's like, what do I need to do to make sure this bill doesn't pass? Well, he's like, well, there's uh, 11 legislators, and I have six of them on my payroll, basically. So here's how much money it would take um, to actually – Prevent it. Prevent it, exactly. And the insane thing at the time is, like, I'm thinking today, like, I've seen all these, like, thrillers, like, political thrillers. I'm like, wouldn't she have just been murdered, (laughs) like, after these articles came out? Because it wasn't like she just used pseudonyms or anything. Like, she named names. She named the name of this person. And somehow, like, nobody with a revolver went after her. And I don't know if it's because she was a significant enough journalist at this time. Because maybe that would have, like, Mm -hmm. you know, like, once you reach a certain point, if somebody tries to silence you, it just proves your point even harder. So yeah, so that was another thing she did. So all these things about investigative journalism and it's so fucked up cuz what's the name of that conservative group that did Acorn and tried to do like all oh, this
1: I don't remember their
3: name. Well, it's like the, they're like kind of related to Breitbart. But all these people that pose as like you know, like on the right, they pose as these people that are like trying to do this stunt journalism. Like she was doing that kind of stunt journalism, but she was doing it in such a genuine, authentic way. Right. She was like shaking the foundations of whole systems to their knees. Um so when she wasn't doing this groundbreaking investigative reporting, um, she this way she was a feminist pioneer The around the world in 72 days. Um, so the voyage was in 1890. And to give it some context, Jules Verne published, so he's the guy who did 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. He pioneered much of the science fiction genre as we know it today. Um, and his book was published in 1873 and, and imagines a voyage around the world by a uh, person named Phineas, phileas flag um and so going on with the stunt journalism theme 17 later years later writing for the new york world um Nellie bligh was able to convince her editors to let her go on a voyage um th- and she would send dispatches home mm-hmm. and there was actually like uh, even competing voyages there was a woman named Breesland who went the other direction <laughs> yeah. so she circumnavigated the world imagine going east from New York to London, um, through Europe, through the Suez Canal, she went to China, Japan, back home to San Francisco, and then road railroad trains back to New York. That's how she. That's how she made it. Um, it's really neat because, which you get all these little touches of culture. And the funny thing is, is like when she wasn't trying to be hardcore investigative journalism mode, she would talk about cities like you would, as if you were. Um, like she would tell you the cool restaurants to go to, and she would tell you what she like what impression she got, like travel logs, basically. Mm-hmm. She also this is really funny too, because she's so She was not a woman that was ashamed of her sexuality because when she saw a hot guy, like in the parlance of the time, she would talk about, like, yes, yeah, this gentleman and and they just tell you, like, this guy was hot. I thought he was hot, and he turned me on. And as much as you get away with that in the Victorian old time that's you speak. <laughs> so it's not – and, like, so it's funny because it's, like, that's what women – that's what people today write about in blogs. It's, oh, like, yeah. to make it interesting, you know, those are the details you include to, like, humanize yourself and make people – so that's another thing I really like, too. Um, one of my favorite parts, and uh, this kind of relates to the whole, like, Last Journals of Nellie Bly, Clash of the Kaiju, but she went to Japan, which in the 1890s was – Having this huge cultural transformation, I don't know if anybody's re- familiar with the anime um, Samurai Shampoo by Shinzo Watanabe, but it covers this time in like the, the very end of the um, the samurai era, the the classic Japanese era, because Japan was so closed off and had very little contact with um, European colonialism. They did deal with the Dutch a little, and so it was slowly creeping into their society, but. This was like in the in the area where there's are still geisha there were still elements of ancient Japanese culture but it was right before um like the Sino-Japanese war where Japan de- defeated Russia in a land war in the early 1900s they also um were part of the allied powers in World War 1 and took a lot of Germany from or p- the Pacific from Germany so this is like right before all this it's right before like in the midst of this huge cultural transformation and um my wife Kelly you can hear her on some episodes of hip square and the American fantastic radio r two. but she studied Japanese in college, Japanese and Chinese. And she won a scholarship. The only one that you, that anybody from UofL caught. And then she studied at this place called Kanzai Gaidai, which is near Osaka. So I was able to go, cause I was also a heart, heart sick college kid, <laughs> went to Japan for nine days and spent time with her and got to see like the Daibutsuden, den, which is the largest wooden uh, temple in the world. Um, I got to go to Tokyo. I got to go to Kyoto, and it's like it's insane because when you're in Japan, there's all these skyscrapers, and all these packed buildings, but then there's also all these ancient temples everywhere. Um, and just like imagining going to that before or in the midst of all this huge transformation, I, it kind of blew me away. That was my favorite part of that. Um, of that section of the Penguin collection. The other thing that really impressed me. And this is this is hilarious. So She would have these times where. So basically when you're reading it, you're reading it as a narrative because all these dispatches kind of link together. And part of it is like, there would be times where they would have to be stuck in port because of weather and she would, you know, have some fun there, but then also get really frustrated. Or, um, there were times when she would be, um, like there was a time when they were on their way from Japan to San Francisco and one of the men was like, Nelly, I'm so sorry. Like I cannot find, um, this paperwork we need. And, like, we're going to have to wait in port for two weeks before we can get on land because we'll just have to wait for the next ship out of the port we just left. And Nellie was like, well, I guess the only thing left to do then is just throw myself off the deck and kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, and she would always have these great relationships with the people on these ships who were, remo- like, overwhelmingly men. And, um, like, it, and it was just great because she, like, it was cool to see her interact with these like working class people and all these, but like she had good relationships with them, but she would also give them shit sometimes. And so that motivated him to like go into this room and search. And he finally found these papers. (laughs) And so there's all these places where like, if this thing didn't happen just right, like she wouldn't have been around to go around the world in uh, 72 days. The other incredible thing is, so she had this, Oh, I forgot to mention backtracking a little. She actually did get to meet Jules Verne in Paris. And I have, I think it was like a lunch or dinner with him and his wife, which was really cool because Um, he was like really impressed with her and he was very encouraging to her. And of course, like that's what inspired it in the first place. So that's a really cool section. Uh, she gets into San Francisco and that's kind of like the whole time people are, um, she's getting all these, yeah, she's getting all these dispatches, but then there's a lottery aspect because people are choosing dates and basically betting on the dates and the New York world had this contest to see who could, and it was like, yeah, it was like this crazy cultural phenomenon at the time, which is also what like blows me away about why she isn't more well-known now. Mm -hmm. Like. This woman was basically, like, the closest you can get as to being, like, a real-life superhero. <laughs> and, like, I love Susan B. Anthony and Sojourner Truth and all these pioneering women, Mary Shelley, but it's, like, why is she not on the Rushmore, List, you know? Because, right. uh, like, this woman's life story, like, she could be – this. well, this could be, like, an HBO miniseries or, you know, like, there, mm-hmm. there's been movies about her. Christina Ricci got to play her, but it's, like, I don't know why she's not just a household name or, like – yeah. I mean, people in the know know about her. I know there's, like, Blue Bruise a little get named after her. That's an episode of Drunk History. It's like, this woman should be, like, a fucking role model to every single little girl growing up today, you know, yeah. in my opinion. If
1: it makes you feel any better, when I told uh, our trivia team about who you had done, they were all like, oh, I know Nellie Bly." So okay, cool. She is a little bit So, like,
3: like smart people or like, people in all this kind of shit know her. But it's, like, yeah. one of the things, like, if you weren't this kind of nerd, you probably wouldn't know. So maybe I'm just make uh, I'm super cynical, but that's mm. cool. I think she, I think she is kind of gradually getting more and more well known, right. which good. is good. Yeah. She's definitely on the up and up. So um, to finish this voyage out, so there was all these insane things that happened. So she had to take a railroad from San Francisco to New York, which in the 1890s was still a pretty remarkable journey to make. the The craziest thing happened. So there was a railroad bridge she was going to and they were working on the railroad bridge at the time but whoever whatever train she was on wasn't notified at first so so the railroad bridge was still standing but there was some like it was like they took all took all of this kind of nut or bolt out so like it was like while they were working on it and the structure was still there but nobody was supposed to ride in this train and it's very likely that there could have been a bridge collapse and like she could have that's how she could have died whoa so nobody was ever supposed to go on this bridge, but somehow she made it across and they didn't know until after the fact that this happened. That's cool. So it's like, that's why I mean it's insane. It was like this journey was predestined. Cause it's like all yeah. these things had to happen just right for it to work, for it to work. Yeah. So she finally did, um, get back to New York and like, there's another really beautiful thing about that too, because as much as she was happy that she accomplished it, she basically said like, yeah, like, the thing that's making me happiest right now is I'm like among my friends again and my family Mm and like back home. Um, so I do want to wrap up like her little like post around the world in 72 days career. Um, one of the great quotes from hers, um, that I think like we could all hold dear is I always have a comfortable feeling that nothing is impossible. If one applies a certain amount of energy in the right direction, when I want things done, which is always at the last moment. And I am met with such an answer. It's too late i hardly think it can be done i simply say nonsense if you want to do it you can do it the question is do you want to do it and that's kind of like her badass attitude and like in my nelly black clash of the kaiju like that's how i try to get her to talk like just these really blunt like no you don't fucking know what you're talking about kind of ways but in that like victorian like polite yeah. way but when you're like your words have this like barbed tongue about them you know <laughs> Um, so she did have a non-journalist career. So sh- at the age of thirty-one, she met, she married a man named Robert Seaman. He uh, led the Ironclad Manufacturing Company. She was thirty-one, and he was seventy-three, so more than twice her age. Um, yeah. And call her a gold digger, call her, you know, because of the uh oppression of women. I'm sure like to get a lot of money you had to do that kind of thing sometimes. Our first lady probably has a lot she could say about that. <laughs> <laughs> but um so after he died, she took over the company and she must not have been that great of a businesswoman or maybe just economic circumstances. She had to go to Europe to do some business, um, after after this to kind of like I don't know, I guess sift through the rubble and help, you know, get as much money as she could to like, you know, keep leave- living as a woman of means. So she was over there in 1914 when World War One broke out. Um, she covered the siege of Chemischl in Austria. If you are trying to Google that, it's P-R-Z-E-M-S-Y-L. Um, it was one of the first battles of World War One. It was a bombardment by the Russians on the Eastern Front. Um, this was... Uh, the Austria was a central power. Russia was part of the allies. Um, This was three years before America even entered the war. And so they were considered neutral. So she wasn't considered um, a turncoat or anything for being there or covering it. Um, There's some incredible stories and they are in that penguin collection about, you know, she did go into the trenches once and experienced what that was like. She was like near the bombardments, and like heard the artillery shows. And so she wasn't like a, an embedded reported or like, with the troops all the time but she was definitely like in the shit sometimes and like put her life at risk and in terms of like if you want to think of how much this woman was a pioneer i know there were people writing from wars in throughout history but especially for a woman to do it and somebody who was already a very significant and well-known journalist um to to do this work correspondence is incredible um, so the, the significant things. So after that, it was kind of like the wind down of her journalist career. she probably would have kept writing throughout the rest of her life. There was an advice column called ask Nellie where she would um, give advice to people who wrote into the New York world. Um, and then this is incredible thing. So she wrote, she helped cause this is the point where people knew of her as this, like almost like this demigod woman. And people would write to her who were like, in cases where like they had kids that they couldn't care for anymore. And she would help them get adopted, but, oh. and she was, it was raw enough where there were times where like, where she couldn't help the people and she still wrote about it. But then there's also the fairy tale times where like, she can get them into a good family and it's neat. Cause like the way it's written, it's like, yeah, it's like listening to an episode of this American life. Cause she basically tracks what the whole process is like mm-hmm. and doesn't just say like, well, here's the consequence. It's like, yeah. you know, you get to it when you get to the end. Um, mm-hmm. So in 1922, she died of pneumonia at St. Mark's hospital in New York city. And she is uh, buried at Woodline cemetery in the Bronx. So I know, yeah, like, so pneumonia, this is in days before penicillin. So she didn't have antibiotics, but just the fact that like, and I kind of wonder, like, so she died in 1922. So she had lived. Into her late 70s, mid 80s, she would have witnessed World War II, which I would have loved to get her opinion on. Like, I know she couldn't be a war correspondent, but just to know what she yeah. thought of that and like the rise of fascism. And uh, anyway, um, so she did lead an incredible life and is is like insanely impressive to me. And I'm so glad I read that. I read that book, mm-hmm. and then she inspired me to write uh, Nellie Bly. Yeah. Last year, I was a Nellie Bly clash of the kaiju because I was like. Basically, this is, like, Nellie Bly and H.P. Lovecraft fanfic blended with kaiju and cosmic horror. So it's, like, yeah, like, I did not know this woman too much of her before, like, midsummer. And now she's, like, I don't know, one of my big heroes. Oh, also, she was really hot. And if you do a Google (laughs) image search, she was gorgeous young lady. Um, She did have to, like, dress in the Victorian era style at the time. So you can imagine what that was like. But she... Yeah, and she, like, never, I don't think, overtly, like, ever, I'm trying to say this in, like, a delicate way, she never basically made her sexuality or her attractiveness, kind of, like, the selling point, Mm -hmm. but if you just look at her, I'm like, God, I have a huge crush on her, because she was just (laughs) beautiful, Um, and, uh, you know, anyway, I'm sure that might have helped her charm people and, like, convince people to, like, fun trips around the world, things like that, or marry a 73-year-old, like, millionaire when she was 31, but anyway, so, yeah, give it up for Nellie Bly.
2: Yes, <laughs> to Nellie. Thank you
1: for that. That was awesome. Oh, you're welcome. And Thanks for, was, yeah. That was take two since the last one died. Yeah,
3: so we tried to do this after my shift ended one night when you were got home super late, and it Thank was you. just a me and Andrew episode, <laughs> and it got lost in the ether, and I was really... Like, I knew it wasn't really Andrew's fault, but I was pissed about it because I was like, that was such a fucking good episode. Like, but then I was like, well, maybe this is the universe just forcing us to do this episode when Rachel's around. That's so I'm right. glad that we were able to <laughs> do this now.
1: Me too. Uh, do you want to tell uh, the listeners American Fantastic and all of your podcasts one more sure. time? Sure.
3: So AmericanFantastic.com is a digital arts collective I founded in 2009. I started it in Seattle with my friend Dorji. He was an artist there. He helped me do a lot of the um, graphic design for the original incarnation of uh, American Fantastic. Uh, I have lived in Louisville since 2011. And, and basically what the ethos is, is that artists work better in collaboration and promoting each other than in competition. And so that's where I self-publish. Um, I have been published in Sanitarian Magazine and Cavalcade Literary Magazine, Tobacco Magazine, but these are all small um publications and and basically the idea is like i don't want to have to compromise myself or write to the um i mean it's an incredible accomplishment for any writer to get published but i don't want to not put out the stuff that doesn't um and i and i also want my friends to have that representation too so like and in, in, in like in genres that i i'm not accomplished in so like visual art um there's video there is photography um, and so what I do is, like, I promote and hype these artists. Um, a few of them you might have heard of, Jack Scally. He's at Aradelfic on Instagram. He just finished a really cool Inktober series. He did the cover of um, Delusions of Grandeur, Stories and Poems. He's been on the front page of Reddit. He has a big cartel store where he sells his work. Uh, Yoko Molotov, who did the um, writer portraits for leo weekly which is our local uh, alternative weekly is on there she did the back cover um and made a zombie cool like old-fashioned movie poster for me for a story called the good the bad and the dead and it's just things like that um and I wrote an entire blog about her. She's part of the um, Halloween update. So is Jack. So is um, one of my old managers from Kudoba called Michael Mays. He was also featured in Leo. Incredibly accomplished photographer. And these are all people like I met Jack because I saw this guy doing this cool like colored like watercolor and in pencil sketches. That uh, we both worked for Spectrum when they were Charter Communications and like the phone support. And so it's like these other people that have these day jobs, but their passion is their write, writing and their art. And that's kind of like what um, I want American Fantastic to become the podcast I record or Hip Square, the pop culture podcast. Um, I also did seven episodes of the American Fantastic Radio Hour that were produced in collaboration with FM. Those all can all be streamed and downloaded at AmericanFantastic.com. Um, and I do, I have two episodes up and hopefully many more of 50 Talk 2, which is my long form interview show, a la WTF with Mark Marin or Fresh Air with Terry Gross. If anybody th- knows an artist or are an artist themselves that wants to be promoted there, just hit me up at AmericanFantastic at gmail.com. Um, I just launched American Fantastic Theater, which is my audiobook storytelling poetry podcast. Uh, it's not going to be exclusively me. There's three episodes so f- up so far, all horror Halloween episodes. Um, the Cottonwood Curse. I would particularly encourage you to listen to that. Was written by me, performed by my little brother Troy. So if you're a Louisvilleian, it takes place in Victorian old Louisville when old Louisville was new. Uh, it's a neighborhood that has a haunted reputation. It's um, my homage to Poe, but it's about a main character who was a scoundrel mm-hmm. and um, basically participates in the murder and lynching of a black man that he catches um having sex with his wife and the um the price he pays for that so yeah (laughs) and uh if you want to keep up with american fantastic you can follow us on facebook uh we do have a patreon um so search american fantastic on patreon can become a member for as little as a dollar a month which is the price of an entree for an entire year's for the sport <laughs> is absent activism arts on patreon are you guys we are, on patreon, are yeah. on patreon okay so yeah so double dip there you <laughs> can um take a friend out to eat for the cost that it would take to support me and absent activism arts for a one dollar membership because uh, like you know like the any impact helps i know if you value independent media um you should definitely you know contribute to your radio labs contribute to your local npr affiliate um, you know, I pay a hundred bucks a month to listen to Mysterious Universe's bonus episodes, but the smaller the, um, snowball is, so to speak, the more impact a dollar makes. So your, your dollar for, to me or Andrew would be like $10 for another podcast, you know, or your $5 would be like a $50. Just think of it that way. So if you want to get more bang for your buck, uh, definitely give, you know, if you're in Louisville, give to your Louisville artist. Christmas is coming up. Um, I'm sure Jack Scali or Yoko Maltov or Mike May would love to sell some prints, uh, I know you, Andrew would like to sell some books. I'd love to sell some books. So there's p- people that you can support if you really care about independent art and media. Um, that's what you have to do. And then I'll get off my soapbox <laughs> now. The last thing I want to say, um, I want to, and this is really the last thing I want to say. I take that um, quote from, I think it's Gandhi, right? Be the change you want to see in the world. Yeah. So if you're an artist, if you're a writer, and someone shares your shit on Facebook or Instagram, you motherfucker better do the same for them. Cause we have to help each other and Andrew does. So I don't have to like, you know, make him blush, but really, um, that's just get some good karma points guys. Yeah. So it's like, cause we don't have money for <laughs> marketing, but because of how social media works, you get somebody viral. I mean, that's how Jack Sky promoted himself. I mean, people had to upvote him on Reddit for people to see his work. So please do that. Okay, thank you. Gavel dropped. Okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Uh, You can find us on Facebook as well. We're Absinthe Activism Arts. We are on Twitter, but we don't use it very much. Um, It's at Absinthe Act Art. I am on Instagram if you want to find pictures of our cute dog um, at AWM Rights. And I'm also on the Fediverse at AWM Rights. And we... We are on Patreon at Absinthe Activism Arts if you want to feel like supporting us.
3: And real quick, I'm at John Beecham, all in word on Instagram. I'm John Beecham on Facebook. I have a public profile for each. Perfect. Thank you so much for having us, and we're going to get out of here. Bye. Bye. <laughs> what are you going to tie-
0: Under the tongues of men lie the simple truths of terror But my love's eyes make bright the night skies and clears the stormy weather In the rain I'm like a wet dog and my hunger it intensifies But the thunder clears all my mind's sounds and the fear it is justified the lightning scorches the plains of fantasies go up and flame the distinguished author goes insane but my love she remains just the same